Hello and welcome to Mixed Feelings, a podcast about news, politics, and pop culture on the Relay FM network. I'm Quinn Rose, and I'm here as always with my co-host, Jillian Parker. Hey, everyone. Hey, Quinn. Hi, Jillian. How are you doing? I'm doing good. We are back from spring break, so that's fun. We are. We have, um, I mean, in my case, narrowly been able to enter the United States. Yeah, Quinn and I have had starkly contrasting spring breaks. And by that, I don't mean that I incited an international incident or something yet yet i just had a plane that was delayed by like 15 hours well i had a flight that was delayed by six hours but that meant we missed the connection and so instead of flying home we flew to miami and then we were in miami for eight hours and then finally we were allowed to fly home wait did they put you up in the hotel they did but only after we fought for it for several hours so you were in the hotel for like four hours well, no, no, no. I mean, we were fighting for it. We had a pretty long layover in Panama, and they shouldn't have given us that because that gave us a lot of time to argue with people, which we did until mm. finally, as we were getting on the plane to Miami, they confirmed that we would have a hotel there for an overnight eight-hour layover, which seems like a very reasonable thing to ask for. No, yeah, it definitely is. Anyway, pretty salty, but hey, we got there. In the end, we've got to return home and survive. Yes, I'm proud of you. Thank you. How was your spring break, Jillian? I got a septoplasty, which is basically when they fix your deviated septum, so I couldn't breathe through my nose for about five solid days, um, and there are still splints in my nose right now, so I have to get those removed, but other than that, we are thriving, and I can breathe again-ish. I'm also excited to confirm that Jillian looks the same, and they didn't mess up her nose. Yeah, oh my god, we were so petrified. And by we, I mean me and my mother. (laughs) Because I had a cast on for like a week, and then when it came off, my mom was just like staring at me. And then it came off, and she was like, you still look like you. And I was like, thank you. (laughs) I also, I do want to stress that besides the flight back experience, I had a wonderful spring break. I was in Costa Rica. I had an amazing time with friends, um... Besides Jillian, who wouldn't come with us. And oh, because of, because of said surgery. <laughs> I did get sunburned, but that was to be expected. So here we are, back again. Already three days into schoolwork. I don't know what's going on. I'm somehow five days behind. You never know what's going to happen here. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah, yeah. It's like the second week of school hits, and then all of a sudden you look at your syllabus, and it's like, wait, how am I like three months behind? <laughs> it happens happens to the worst of us. But anyway, procrastination problems aside, our first story today is on an interesting piece of legislation that is come across, well, it's um, been passed in the United States House of Representatives, it's going before the Senate, and it is called the Stop Enabling Sex Trafficking Act, or SESTA. So this is an interesting case. It feels like it should be pretty cut and dried. The whole point of this legislation is to try to help prevent uh sex trafficking especially child sex trafficking um by uh targeting companies or websites such as specifically um backpage and also like craigslist so the craigslist isn't specifically mentioned these places that um there are advertisements for it and like third parties who are advertising for things and posting on these websites and using them um to exploit other people And so the point of this legislation is to hold these websites culpable for these kinds of advertisements and solicitations. 
this comes on the heels of a whole bay controversy with specifically Backpage and um, issues that that site has had, and it's likely to face legal action regardless of whether or not this legislation passes. But in this case in particular, there's actually it's actually a very controversial bill, and there's a lot of pushback against it as well because. Uh, for two reasons. One, people say that it actually won't help sex trafficking victims um, because that this kind, like these posts on these kind of um, easily tracked websites, are actually provide like a better digital footprint for tracking down these things than it would if you had to resort to more backdoor measures, and as well as um, it could cause damage to people who are um, consensual sex workers, which is a whole. We'll get into that conversation in a sec um but but that it, it it harms the safety of those people and and their attempts to um like warn people about bad clients or like solicit clients safely and that kind of thing and then on the other hand there's also this this concern about uh basically the regulation of the internet um because the, this bill this legislation would specifically target this thing called section 230 of the communications decency act which is a piece of legislation that we've had um in effect for a long time and what that basically means is that websites are not responsible for what users post on them so that's why websites like facebook and all that can can exist because like i mean if facebook was actually could be held legally responsible for everything that users post on it then like we wouldn't really be able to have facebook um, and that is sort of true for all social media. And so that that there's an argument that if this bill passes and it creates um, concerning precedent for um, holding websites and all kinds responsible for all kinds of content that's posted on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I guess I want to talk about two things. One, um, on a lighter note, Sesta is just like a really fun name, I feel. Like, it just reminds me of Siesta, which is a long nap. But anyways, um, moving on, I digress. Number two, I just feel like, based on what you said, Quinn, so this is kind of the worst of both worlds in terms of, like, in an effort to increase transparency, it actually harms those who need to remain anonymous, like, for their jobs, those who are consensual sex, work- sex workers. Um, and then two... It like seems to hide the track of people that we should be keeping, you know, our eyes on, and because we don't have, we wouldn't have as close of a an electronic footprint. Yeah, that's the basic argument, and I think it's it's largely non-intuitive. I think, um, but I, I honestly think that most legislation, when it comes to sex work and sex trafficking, is largely non-intuitive because mm. these issues are so complicated. I have complicated feelings about this whole topic because I think that you you have to see and you have to really think through all of the possibilities of what could happen with potential legislation because on the surface, like, oh, like, let's make it easier to punish websites that are enabling sex trafficking. Like, yeah, that sounds great. <laughs> of course, like, who wouldn't support that? Mm-hmm. But the actual practical implications of what it means um, could have the opposite of the intended effect, which is it's that kind of thing is so tragic because it's impossible to say now like for sure what the effects would be um but you have to play all these possibilities and say like okay which one do we think is most likely to happen Mm -hmm. yeah and i guess it all relates to this issue that we just have in general with which is the conflation of um at least legally the conflation of sex trafficking and voluntary sex work so this law while although it would technically prevent or at least help with the issue that we have with sex trafficking it's just very 
is very much related to voluntary sex work. So it might harm those who aren't necessarily being trafficked for sex, but rather those who like have no other options um, and are doing this uh, for for um, job purposes. Yeah, and we should clarify what we mean by sex work as well, because I think so. Sex worker is this umbrella term to refer to people who work in industries that basically use sex as a commodity in different forms. Um, so that includes prostitution, pornography, um, exotic dancing, anything like that. And so, but I, in this case, and in that, uh, this kind of legislation will affect all sorts of different sex workers in different ways, but um, obviously most prominently uh, people who are working in prostitution. Mm-hmm. And prostitution is, on the most part, like illegal in the United States, but I believe one state, Nevada, right? There's there's like one county in Nevada, or like there's specific... In Nevada, it's legal in very specific types of places. They're, they're sort of... Um, it's like in specific counties, and and it has to be a certain population bracket and different kinds of stuff, and there are very strict regulations on how it happens there. But yes, it mm-hmm. is legal in some places in Nevada. Yeah, I need to we I need to find the article so that we can link it. But basically, it was um, kind of like the the diary of a voluntary sex worker in Nevada, and it was just like a very you know enlightening piece, I guess, about like what goes on and how like there are especially just like in that business, in that specific county in Nevada, it was just very specific regulations um, in, order to pr- in order to protect the, both those who are um, using sex as a commodity and those who are purchasing it as a commodity. And then there are other countries across the world who, in some places, prostitution is legal, and other places, um, it is decriminalized. Um, and there's a very interesting case. It's called the Swedish model, because this is um, the laws of prostitution in sweden is it is illegal to buy sex but not illegal to sell it so what that means is that it's still like prostitution as like a two-person act um is still illegal but like the person who is selling the sex cannot be legally prosecuted for it only the person buying it so so that protects sex workers in a lot of ways because they're able to seek um, help and care like if because it's a very dangerous job in so many ways. And so they don't have to fear um, being punished themselves if they have to, to, to reach out to law enforcement or something like that. But at the same time, like it's still like a very discouraged part of society and um, you can still be arrested for soliciting a sex worker Ugh. so that's that's an interest i mean that brings it with this its own problems but that's a very interesting model that um more and more people are becoming aware of and considering for different countries oh this is why i love scandinavia well aside from the high taxes but whatever um <laughs> yeah no this is interesting and also i think just like i feel like sex work is already so stigmatized that having this law is just not only going to affect those who are um in sex work not only impact them negatively uh, in legal ways but also just like in general like the culture um basically another another piece of legislature that will make those who like turn to sex work because they have little to no other options just feel worse about their profession um and so regardless of your own opinion on sex work whether whatever you think about it it i think it's safe to say that passing this law without really taking into account not only the sexual trafficking but all, not only the sex trafficking but also like the what is 
usually conflated with, which is um, sex work. And I don't think we should just overlook that. Um, I think we need to evaluate all different aspects of this law and the different interpretations and consequences of it. I will say my two cents on um, the legality of prostitution and all of that, uh, as sort of a side note, but obviously very relevant, is that um, there are so many different opinions on prostitution and like the moral correctness of it as well as the legal correctness of it as well as i mean just like practical decision making about um like the safety of it because i mean it's a very dangerous job in so many different ways in terms of health and safety and all these things and it's also like as you were saying oftentimes a last resort for people like while there are some people that like this is their best life and you always hear those stories of like prostitutes who are making tons of money and like it's the best job they've ever had and i'm so happy for those people and but a lot of times it's like people with very low incomes with very few options but at the same time it's sort of a it's a symptom not the cause it's like cracking down on sex work for people who are doing it consensually is just furthering furthering the harm of those people furthering stigma rather than maybe addressing like poverty which is the cause of um why a lot of people have to turn to to prostitution yeah i mean i think it's if you do feel strongly about this issue i do understand why people would be against this but i think also we need to remind ourselves that like it's it's hard for me to imagine someone waking up and just being like no this is exactly what i want to do and like quinn said it's usually a symptom of like negative conditions that have already happened in their life Mm mm-hmm and so I guess, Quinn, like, do you think prostitution should be legal? I am very unsure. I used to think yes. So I, just as my personal belief, don't think that there is anything morally wrong with prostitution. And I won't get into why, but if people have questions, like, happy to fully explain my views on that. But in terms of the legality of it, mostly because of the sex trafficking that exists in the world and because I, I did this whole research paper on this one time, which is why I'm I'm no longer quite so sure, um, because there are implications of uh, if prostitution is legal, it becoming much easier to hide sex trafficking and um, to make that a more pervasive issue that's harder to pin down. And so basically, I don't know. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, it is certainly like such a controversial topic i think it i think it is sometimes hard to try to develop a a really thorough response that you know it's like a very black or black and white kind of situation and like i think we still i think there are just so many facets of this concept that i don't know if assigning a black or white like value to it is the most useful um yeah so i like So my entire life, I was like, no, just because like, this is kind of what they tell you in Catholic school, like just sex in general is bad, let alone like buying it. Um, But, and I guess like, I didn't really have an opinion or like a really well-developed opinion because I didn't take a class like when, like I didn't write a paper on this. So I don't really know too much about it to really have, or really have like a justified explanation for what I think is right. Um, But I will say that in my atheism class, it is very interesting that how we decide morality is on this p- 
pre on this notion that there is some sort of higher being that dictates what is right versus what is wrong. So would things still be moral if we knew for a fact that there was no God? It's kind of like, would things like, how would we treat things um, that were once previously illegal if all governments and systems like shut down? Like this, this idea of that everything is kind of very arbitrary and basically the circumstances um, of where your mindset is can like really dictate how you live your life versus like, and also just like how you view things. So that was a very interesting thing to look at, I guess. Hello everyone. And welcome to your ethics 101 class. (laughs) (laughs) I hope you did the reading. (laughs) Oh my God. That class literally assigns so much reading. Okay. We've gotten pretty deep into the weeds of to this, this wider question, but bringing it back to this piece of specific legislation, I, in all of my reading about this, I've seen enough to be very concerned about the further implications of what this means, especially since when I was trying to read pro arguments for it, it seemed fairly vague on what the benefits of this would be. It was like, well, we could legislate these people. And I'm like, okay, but like, how, like, how does that specifically help? But I wasn't seeing a lot of arguments um, for that, as opposed to the, the, the possibilities of, like we said, like this making it more difficult to find safe work, making it more difficult to track down these incidents, and like this overall implication of um, of a less free internet and potentially a less safe internet. Um, but is it more safe if you're removing these digital trails that currently can help people track down these incidents? A huge story that's going around this week is about Cambridge Analytica which I checked, it is not the Cambridge outside of Boston, it is the Cambridge in the United Kingdom. And this was a company that gathered a bunch of data from Facebook. Um, It did through, so one of those personality quizzes, which like, I'll admit I've taken these. Oh, I've taken so many of those. We were youth, okay? (laughs) We were right in that target demographic for these Facebook quizzes. But, so it took one of these Facebook quizzes that allow, that, and there's this pop-up that's like, oh, by using this Facebook app, then it allows you access to these things. And everybody's like, okay. Um, And so it gathered a ton of data from people, and it scraped a bunch of data from those people's friends list as well. And so it just, an absurd number of user profiles, um, various data from these profiles. The thing is, Cambridge Analytica said it was gathering them for an academic purpose, and it was not. It was gathering them for a political purpose. And so when Facebook found out that they had lied about this, then they were like, no, you can't do that, and they shut it down. But Cambridge Analytica still had the data. It's all very confusing. The story, like, more and more information keeps coming out about this story and various things. Now there's videos of them, supposedly like this undercover sting operation where Cambridge Analytica offered to do all of these immoral, illegal things to help someone out. But the punchline of this is that these user profiles were then used to target advertisements um, in the 2016 election. And so people were like, is this part of the reason why Trump won and all this stuff? And basically, it's a huge mess. Facebook is not doing well. Yeah, I believe the stock value of Facebook went down a lot after this news broke. Um, And actually, Mark Zuckerberg technically lost $5.1 billion off his net worth, so Unfortunately, he's no longer the fifth richest person in the world, but the seventh. So you hate to see that. I have nothing but laughs for that. <laughs> yeah, so people are mad at Cambridge Analytica. People are mad at Facebook. Um, what's interesting is it's been referred to as a data breach, but it's not 
actually a data breach because it's data functioning exactly how it was supposed to. Like Facebook's whole thing is that they just gather data on their users and then other companies use that data. And it was just so massive. And I think especially because it was connected to the 2016 election that it's sparked a particular backlash. And what's interesting is it's like the it was a whistleblower that called this attention. Like someone who worked on this team and who helped develop these tools then came forward and is like, I did this. Um, and this is what happened. And so that's where this story broke. Wow. And it got banned from Facebook. Like they deleted his Facebook account, which is wild. That's kind of funny. It's kind of, it's kind of weird. I'm like, can you do that? Oh my God. This is, ugh, Big Brother is watching everyone. This is literally 1984. Um, no, I think it's just, I think, I guess the main concern with this in general, like, yes, all of this was done how did you say it? Like all of this was data was functioning as it was supposed to. It was just like Facebook was like, you you guys should delete this. And Cambridge Analytica was like, okay. And then just didn't. <laughs> Which is just, yeah. Were we expecting them to do anything else? Yeah. Like, come on. This is like the 17th time Facebook has been culpable in users' information getting, I mean, not, it's funny. It's like, we can't even say it's in the wrong hands. It was in the hands we knew it was in the entire time. They were, supposedly misusing it but like again this is just how facebook is designed which is wild this is just how social media in general is designed like everything you put out there is probably going to be misused in some function or another i really think it was facebook that propelled this shift though because i mean you have this with all social media and that they track all your clicks and they know everything that you're doing but i think that facebook in particular really started this I think a sort of acceptance on the, the the average person's psyche that their data would be taken and then like, who cares, basically? And like, we all have all taken these dumb Facebook quizzes that are like, this gets your profile information. And we're like, okay, because it, it doesn't seem to matter. Um, but then now, I think, especially in the wake of the election, we're seeing ways that it does matter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think it's just really hard, especially as, you know, a st- a struggling college student when I see all my friends take these profile quizzes and I just like have to do the same. So I just have to offer more information up to Facebook and other websites. Um, see now we just all take Buzzfeed quizzes. Um, and who knows what they're doing, but at least you don't have to give them your Facebook information. Yeah. I think, I think you're right about that. Like how I may, maybe when social media just first came out, Oh my God, I sound so old. When, when, when social media, back was, in my day. <laughs> um, when social media, you know, really, really became this huge thing like people were aware that they were giving up information or just like there was some sort of concern but then again like facebook being the largest social network um was just like people were just like yeah well it's like if all of my friends information is out there then mine is probably gonna be there as well so i might as well just you know jump on jump on board if you've never uh, considered your security on Facebook and you're worried about this now, there'll be links in the descriptions for things like how to block outside apps from using your Facebook data and all sorts of stuff like that. Um, but of course, with all of these things, it's like the the whole, I think one of the big points of this whole story was that it wasn't just the users who were using this this quiz. It was all, it was their friends as well that were getting data taken from them. And so that's, like, it's, it's sort of this no one is safe situation unless you delete your Facebook page. And that brings them to a whole... Because a lot of people were like, delete Facebook. And it's like, well, Facebook is a tenant of modern life. And you can delete your Facebook. But for a lot of people, it's like a real 
tool and a, and a non-replaceable tool for contacts and businesses and family live out of state and all sorts of stuff. Um, two things. One, yes, that is true. But apparently, study well studies by studies, I mean my little sister um, <laughs> says that Facebook isn't a thing in Generation Z, like because parents had it before they did, so thus making Facebook automatically uncool. Um, and so they are really much more into Snapchat, which is you know Snapchat and Instagram, which is owned by Facebook. Yeah, that's also the really sad thing about this. I love Instagram, even though they totally ruined the app by ruining the chronological timeline. But it's still such a great user experience for the most part. And But Facebook owns it, so we can't have any nice things. Yeah. Um, and I guess the second thing I want to say is, I don't believe that if you delete your Facebook, they still won't have your data. Yeah, you're probably right. Yeah, like I'm a firm believer in that like, if I go on, if I have ever developed some sort of identity on the internet, all of my data can eventually be tracked to me. I think it's just a matter of how hard it is to get there. Um, so I just started taking, I guess, more caution with like using Wi-Fi and public, like using public Wi-Fi and like making sure like you set up some sort of VPN or whatever um, to protect you know, like from people hacking onto your information when you use public Wi-Fi. But I think like also just, I, it's just like really scary how like everything you do is basically going to be tracked. Um, and I, even like search history, like even when you private browse stuff, like you can still obviously find your search history. Um, and I, I like don't have, I was talking to someone who was in computer science. Um, and they were saying like, yeah, like, Basically, if a, if a really good hacker, like, wants to know your search history, they will find your search history. Um, the only way to, like, maybe make it undistinguishable from, like, your actual search history is to just make this algorithm that runs random Google searches and just, like, have that running constantly in addition to when you Google your own thing. So it's virtually impossible to tell whether the computer Googled it or whether you Googled it. Interesting. That is a complicated setup yeah that seems like a lot of work and i don't think my computer has the ram to do that we i don't think we've really seen the full implications of the world that we live in yet because i mean i remember when facebook was invented and i mean i was in elementary school but i remember it coming around and so it's it's been this ingrained part of our lives for pretty much our entire memory mm -hmm. but at the same time like we haven't it hasn't been around long enough for it to really us to see really the effects of it. I think we're starting to see the first trickles of that now, but I definitely don't think this is the worst of it. And I feel like it's a sort of this, this whole attitude of like, oh, well, I'm not important, so who cares? Who has my data? Does it matter? It's like, well, it does matter, though, because first of all, you should just care about your private information regardless. Like, that's, you, it's just, you have a legal constitutional right to privacy, hypothetically, so. Theoretically. You should, that's just a thing that you're allowed to care about. But also beyond that, it, the way that these things are amalgamated and used in advertising campaigns that are, they're not, this is not something that was just trying to sell you like a dishwasher. This is someone trying to elect a president of a United States, a United States, the United States. And, um, and it's impossible to prove with these things if they had a real effect or if, like, this was the turning point or whatever. But this is just the latest in, like, all this Russian bot stuff and on Twitter and different sites. And now we're seeing this thing on Facebook and the way Facebook has also been 
manipulated for various political purposes and these things definitely add up Mm -hmm. and also not only in like in addition to private information being publicized just like in general like even related to politics like say it's just now so much easier to look stuff up on people right to like track what they did you know years ago especially like when people from like our generation or at least from like our cohort um start running for you know maybe president of the united states and then it's like oh let's see every meme that their friends tagged them in Uh oh (laughs) yeah my meme history is not great i did see an article the other day that was like scientists say that the president of the united the future president of the united states probably has a finster right now (laughs) and it was very funny yeah i finstered that actually um (laughs) (laughs) yeah like people now are just gonna be so much more culpable for like the stuff they did when they were teenagers because of finsta and because of memes my mom actually was kind of alarmed because i was tagged in some not not raunchy memes, maybe like PG memes. Um, and my mom texted me and she was like, Jillian, I'm concerned about your Facebook. And I'm like, what? And she was like, what is a memes? And I'm like, oh God. That's my favorite thing your mom has ever said. <laughs> what is a memes? <laughs> oh, Carolyn. Um, while we're talking about this in terms of data and what the future generation is going to do about all the records that are about us in online in the internet this is wow this was a really bad transition and i apologize basically what i want to talk about what we want to talk about next is uh this article that the new york times released which shows extensive data on um on how black males are affected in terms of like the workplace so those so black boys raised in america even in very well-to-do families and living in like really nice neighborhoods still earn lower incomes than white boys of similar backgrounds the data visualization for all of this is absolutely gorgeous and it's not really the point but god it's so beautiful Mm -hmm. (laughs) love a good data visualization but yeah super concerning findings (laughs) Overall, I think that this this was a bit of a landmine in terms of data because um, for the past few years, there's sort of been this idea that like, oh, the real issues in our society are about class, not about race. And even if class and race are correlated, then it's, it's actually the class that's the problem, not the race. And so that's what we should really be tackling. But this data is showing that like in this data set, even when you're comparing people in the same class, white boys are growing up to become more financially successful than black boys. What this data basically says is, hey, we still have huge issues with race in this country and racism and how that affects our people. Mm-hmm. And I think what I found most interesting about this study is that they didn't find the income gap between black and white women. It was only between black males and white males. Um, and to me, that just like, I guess, just brings up all of these connotations about p- police brutality and just like, you know, I'm, I'm sure like the timing isn't exact, but like it's still we're in this very... We're in this culture um, that does seem to punish black males. And like, I think that's just, I think it's safe to say that that's pretty well known. Yeah. And to be clear, there is absolutely an income income gap between black and white women, but it appears that this is primarily um, almost entirely offset when you control for income or when you control for like family income. And so like rich black girls and rich white girls do about as well as each other um and they don't have the same disparities yeah as opposed to rich boys and rich as opposed to rich boys as opposed to rich white boys and rich black boys yeah 
and some theories being floated about this, like, like you said, are, are related to discipline in the way that um, there's lots, all sorts of data about how more heavily disciplined black boys are in school um, and things like this that can really affect um, like educational outcomes and income outcomes later in life. And just another interesting thing about this study is that, so I guess a lot of critics in the past, maybe not necessarily about the study, is that, oh, race isn't the problem. It's the fact that like black guys are statistically more likely to grow up in households where there aren't two parents and like things like that. And that's obviously going to impact um, their future income. But then they like did this study and it was like, nope, even in the same kind of family structure, black boys still did worse than white boys. There was a part where they were talking about um, they wanted to look at neighborhoods where black and white boys had the same income outcomes based on their original family's incomes and those neighborhoods basically don't exist which is really terrible the ones that came the closest were places where just overall poverty was very low um and it did matter when there was a higher percentage of two-parent households on the average but it didn't like so even if like it was a family with a black father that was absent in some way um if like the average family in the area um had a two-parent household then like that didn't matter this article focused mainly on this disparity between um black boys and white boys but there was an interesting note as well um in terms of high mobility rate for asian americans so asian americans um earn the highest like by income bracket so like they earn more in adulthood than white people who are raised in families with similar incomes um but if you take out uh but if you only look at children whose parents were born in the united states then this uh advantage largely disappears um and it becomes much 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 less prominent so it's it's interesting that i think that there's not really enough uh data here to go really into this but the interesting implication that um this gap and this benefit is really down to um immigrant parents Mm -hmm. yeah um although the study does make does mention the caveat that they did not divide um immigrant mothers into smaller groups by origin so that definitely probably has some sort of impact um yeah i really hope someone does specific research on that next because there's specific analysis on that next because that could be fascinating mm -hmm. yeah definitely i mean i think the biggest struggle with a lot of these studies is data um and how like reliable data is and also just like even a lot of data a lot of these surveys i don't actually did they say where they got this information this is census data this is census data yeah um one of the big issues that with census data um even like i had this issue when i was doing research for my thesis because i also use census data um is that a lot is that all of it is pretty much self-reported um and so even if it like even if you make a mistake even if the person like filling out um the survey makes a mistake and that's you still like can't go into the data and change that because it's, that's just not ethical according to data standards so a lot of it does rely on self-reported statistics um but we just have to remember or take into account the human error that can go in that yeah which is why that they when they do studies like this they're looking at millions of people like this this is a, a study looking at 20 million people mm -hmm. i think um so that they can draw conclusions based on huge overall trends because i mean if you have even if you only look at like a million people then you you compare to the whole country well it's like well that's not enough data and so you you get into these massive numbers mm -hmm. yeah 
I'm very interested in two things. One, the future data that comes out of this and the, the studies that can be pulled forward from this. Because, I mean, I think that this uh, is a bit of a, could potentially become a landmark study in the way that um, it addresses race and class and shows these definitive things and be like, okay, well, like, let's take all of these questions and dive really into them and, and um, pull in all sorts of different data. And I love studies. <laughs> But then also in terms of like how um, non-academics and like activists and ordinary people uh, take this information and what they do with it. Because um, this is a very popular article. It's been going around a lot. Granted, it's a very popular article like in my circles, which tend to be more like academic slanted, activist slanted, that kind of thing. But I think it shows a lot of useful information. And I think that it, it is a good starting point for talking about like, okay, well, if this is the gap that we're seeing and we we're getting closer to pinpointing exactly what this gap is, what will actually solve it? Narrowing the question, always a good time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so just, I guess, looking at the study and just looking at the systemic racism that does exist in our country, um, I think it's safe to say that the black white income gap is not about genes or family structure because one we did the they looked at um black boys and white boys with one and two parents and they still found that there was a huge disparity between their income later in life um but there was a book written um years ago called the bell curve saying that oh like Black males earn less than white males because black males are just genetically less intelligent than white males. And it's like, well, uh, no. <laughs> I think not. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, obviously, like, a, such a racist theory from the very beginning. Um, and the data was not that good. And, and the bell curve is very infamous. Um, but it, I, this is just one more thing that's like, also, the bell curve still not true. <laughs> In more lighthearted news, there's now a children's book about a gay bunny. <laughs> TLDR version of this, Mike Pence, well, specifically Mike Pence's daughter and his wife, wrote and illustrated this children's book about their bunny, and it's supposed to be like, a day in the life of the vice president's bunny. Blah, blah, blah. And then John Oliver um, turned around and made a book about the same bunny, um, but he's gay. <laughs> and the plot of this, it's a day in the life of Marlon Bundo, which I guess is the bunny's name and he falls in love with another male bunny and then this um there's a stink bug who quote bears a striking resemblance to mr pence um who tells them they can't get married <laughs> and that's that's the premise of this book and um, i'll i'll and all proceeds from it go towards um the trevor project and aids united and uh guess which book is more popular it's marlon mundo <laughs> the gay bunny <laughs> There's a little bit of, like, a kind of weird feeling of, like, oh, this straight comedian um, getting all this positive attention for making a children's book about a gay bunny and, like, using this, like, conflict between Mike Pence and, like, the LGBTQ community because he's caused such horrible damage and, like, has attempted to cause so much horrible damage to various people. But at the same time, one, it's hilarious. It just is. And two, all the proceeds are going to charities that help um, LGBTQ people. Um, and so I'm cool with it. I think it's great. Also, the article that we're going to link, it's just it just gives a great like description of 
um, John Oliver's book. It's just it's just like a snappily dressed bunny. I'm just like I would like to be described as someone who is snappily dressed. My favorite line in this article, it's so great. They're describing the plot of the two different books, and then it gets to um, the book that was written by the Pences, and it says, Miss Pence's book is more sober children's fare. It is not known if it identifies Marlon Bundo's sexual orientation at all. <laughs> like, someone had to write that in the New York Times. <laughs> oh my god, that's hilarious. I really hope that's in, I followed the out of context New York Times Twitter account, which everyone should follow, and I haven't checked, but I hope that's a line that they included. <laughs> Are there gay bunnies also? I think so. They're, they're gay chimps, right? They're pretty much gay everything. Okay, here's a Wikipedia article for a list of mammals displaying homosexual behavior. Oh, giraffe is on there. Interesting. Oh, apparently giraffes are very gay. They engage in more male-to-male sexual behavior than male-female. Wow, go giraffes. Giraffes are in my top five, top five favorite animals. I can confirm that according to Wikipedia, rabbits have demonstrated homosexual behavior. <laughs> ah, so yes, Marlon Bundo. Woo. Well, I, I love a canon character. <laughs> okay, breaking news. There's a book about gay animals. It's called Biological Exuberance, Animal Homosexuality and Natural Diversity. Getting on my reading list. That's kind of fun. I'm into this. It's from 1999, so probably has to be updated significantly. But wow, what a time to be alive. <laughs> Imagine just, like, being, like, the researcher on this case and having people ask what you do for a living. Okay, let's be clear here. Pretty much all researchers do weird stuff. Yeah, that, I mean, that's fair. Yeah. Anyone who's studying animals probably has a very weird research question. <laughs> My friend's thesis um, was about baboons sniffing other baboons' butts. Excellent. Mm-hmm. They were great pictures. Oh, I'm sure there were. <laughs> I just really like how this book is more popular than... Not only more popular than the original, it's become more popular than the upcoming um, Comey memoir, <laughs> which is, like, an actual book about the White House and, like, actual things that happened. And then John Oliver was like, na na na, gay bunny. And everyone was like, hell yeah. <laughs> Mm-hmm. This is the quality content we didn't know we needed. I do like how Charlotte Pence, who's like 23, 24-ish, um, when asked about this, she was like, oh, I think it's nice. Like, I think it's cool that this, you know, now there's just another bunny book out there with their proceeds going to charity. Because the proceeds from the first book are going to um, are going to A21, which is um, an organization that fights human trafficking. Granted, it says only some of the profits, whereas all of the profits from the John Oliver book are going to charity checkmate charlotte pence <laughs> i don't know i mean i still think it's just like a legitimate um comment like oh like it's fine like this is cool no such thing as bad publicity um yeah there this is just i wish i had this idea of making a children's book about a gay bunny yes i believe in you i think that there are many gay animals you can write children's books about <laughs> and source the uh Source that book from 1999 as the the main citation. I want a children's book about every animal in that book. Where is my gay giraffe children's book? I love giraffes. 
One time I had to read a book for school about bunnies. Like, the entire book was bunnies, and it was called Watership Down. Um, and we had to read this in high school. And it was, like, a fine book, but, like, it's it was literally written by this dad for his children because he would tell them a, a story about these bunnies, like, you know, over a month's time and, like, add, like, cool stories and different adventures and until his daughters were like, oh, you should actually make a book. Um, and it's so funny because, like, when I was reading this, I was like, oh, my God, like, I can't, I can't wait to, like, go to class and, like, learn about all the, like, the rich, deep symbolism behind this, you know? And then literally there was, like, an interview with the author and they were like, so what's, like, the deeper meaning behind this? And he was like, none. It's literally just because my daughters wanted me to write down the story about bunnies. And I was like, okay, whatever. One time in elementary school, I read the entire Benicula series, and I think that's really shaped who I am as a person. And that's going to be all from us today. If you would like to find us on Twitter, you can follow us at MixedFeelingsFM. You can also find us online at Relay.fm slash MixedFeelings, where there is a contact form if you want to send us an email. You can find me on Twitter at AspiringRobotFM. And you can find me on Twitter at underscore Jillian Parker. Thanks for talking with me, Jillian. Always a pleasure. Thanks for talking with me, Quinn. I'm Quinn Rose. I'm Jillian Parker. And these were our mixed feelings. Ooh.